Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here this morning. Thanks for being here. So how do you draw someone into a story? If you were sitting down to read a book, if you're watching a new TV show, how do you draw your audience in? That's a key question of any kind of artistic endeavor. Unless you're just sort of making the art for yourself, you need to be thinking about an audience. So how do you draw someone in to your story? You can have an action-packed opening to a movie. You can have a beautiful beginning to a piano concerto. Uh, I kind of come from the world of, of literature and books, so I want to do something kind of fun for me, and y'all get to have fun too, trust me. Uh, we're going to look at the first line of a couple of famous books, and I want to see if you can guess them. If you don't know them, it's okay. You're probably from an engineering background. That's fine. Books are these things that have pages in them, and you read them, and they're not manuals. They're like creative and that kind of thing, so I'm sorry. I'll stop making fun of y'all. Here is the first one, easy one. What's this from? Anybody know it? Moby Dick. Call me Ishmael. The very beginning of Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Marley was dead to begin with. A Christmas Carol, right? Not Bob Marley. Jacob Marley, his partner. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Come on, this is shooting fish in a barrel, guys. Like, seriously. I do love this uh, particular cover. One, because we have it at home. Two, I love the children just embracing Aslan just so powerfully. Okay, a couple more. This is a little trickier. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. Anybody study African-American literature? Okay. This is called Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Anybody read it? It's wonderful. Just an incredible book. Last one. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Anybody know this one? Classic. British author, dystopian future, George Orwell's 1984. Okay, you did pretty good, guys. You did pretty good. Now, every one of those opening lines shares something in common. They're brief. They're really short. The shortest one, Call Me Ishmael, was just three words. The longest one was 14 words. There's an economy of words when you're trying to draw people in to a story. You don't want to go on and on and on, because then you're going to lose your reader, you're going to lose your audience. We've all watched movies and TV shows, it just, it took too long to kind of get the plot moving, and for most of us, we go, yeah, you know, I don't think I want to do that. As we've talked about compassion, as we've gone through this sermon series on what is compassion, how does Jesus express this uniquely in Luke's uh, chapter 7, we've gotten to see over and over again that his compassion is different. And he's calling us into it. He's calling us to be people who can receive his compassion, but also that can extend it to others. And he does so in today's text with 37 words. If you want to look at this in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 7. I'm referring specifically to verses 41 and 42. He gives a mini parable about these two people who owe money to a money lender. It's 37 words. And I would argue in those 37 words, he presents one of the most majestic aspects of the gospel. One of the most powerful things that certainly keeps me coming back to faith in Jesus Christ, keeps me from departing from the faith. It is such an incredible thing to look at. 37 words, that's it. 
And that's what we're going to look at today, is how those 37 words land in this fascinating dialogue between some very important religious authorities and a woman whose name we don't even know, but who's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in so many ways. So we're going to look at uh, today's passage. I'll come back to that in a minute. We're going to set the scene. We're going to look at those 37 words briefly, and we're going to talk about the great love that is shown. And then we'll have a little bit of opportunity for reflection and response. Uh, to go back briefly, when we say compassion, what are we talking about? In the New Testament, this is the word that is used, splakizomai, which means to have your bowels, yes, we're talking about bowels in church, your guts yearn for someone to be relieved of their pain. It's not an intellectual exercise. You need to use your brain to have compassion for others, but it's that gut-level feeling where you go, oh, like, I need to do something about this. I need to intervene. I need to step in. We've learned that practicing compassion is antithetical to your busy life and my busy life. Compassion will take us away from our schedule. To show someone else kindness or to come beside them in a place of distress, it's not going to fit into your neatly ordered day. And it will be costly, but it will be worth it. And the thesis for today is that compassion is at the very heart of the gospel. So let's get into that. This, uh, again, is our outline. We're going to set the scene, okay? So in today's story, we are still way up here. This is the ancient Near East, the Holy Land. Jerusalem is down here. And up in the north, in the sticks, in the country, is this little town called Nain, N-A-I-N. As far as we can tell, Jesus is still in the town of Nain. He was there last week when he encountered a woman whose son had died. Remember, and he raised the son back to life. While he's in Nain, Jesus is followed by a large crowd of people. And for a small town like this, presumably small town, some guy rolls into town and he's got a bunch of people around him. That's a noteworthy event. Like, you're paying attention to that if you live in Nain. Jesus draws the attention of a local Pharisee, someone that we find out later whose name is Simon. If you know anything about Jesus and the Pharisees, you know they didn't typically hang out together. They were not buddies. They were not on each other's Hanukkah card list. They were often at odds with one another. And yet, this Pharisee decides, I want to have Jesus into my house. Now, some of this may have just been curiosity. He wanted to see what Jesus is like. You get to know someone when you have a meal with them, right? I kind of think this Pharisee knew that this was going to be the one and only time that Jesus would roll through this little town. As far as we know, he didn't make it back up in this general direction later on in his ministry. This is probably his one visit to this little town. And so this Pharisee starts to go, you know, this is my one shot. This is my chance to interact with Jesus. I, I should do something about it. So he invites him over to his house for dinner. Now, in the ancient Near East, dinner did not look like dinner at your house and my house. And it still looks like this in parts of the Middle East. So this is a depiction of what this dinner scene may have looked like. It's from a painter named James Tussaud. We've looked at his work before. This is Tussaud's representation of a different story, but there's similar themes in here. There's Jesus reclining on this couch. There's the woman who is showing tremendous love to him. Now, in the ancient Near East, if you were invited into someone's house for dinner, you didn't, you know, pull up your chair at the table and sort of sit down like we normally do. You would have reclined on a, a couch-type seat to show that you were comfortable, to show that you weren't going anywhere, and there were different seats arranged around kind of a common table. You see these guys sort of leaning on it, and then a servant over there on the right would come around and bring you food. 
Uh, I have not eaten a meal like this. Has anyone eaten a meal like this, reclining with your feet out next to you? I tried getting up and getting down from that position earlier. There was a lot of grunting and moaning. Like, you know you're getting older, by the way, when you grunt and moan, when you get off the ground. Like, younger people can just, ah, it's not a big deal. So Jesus is in this position because this is what you did when you went and had a meal at an important person's house. This helps explain some of the stage directions later on in the text. The woman comes behind him, but then anoints his feet with oil and kisses his feet. How can you come behind someone and get at their feet? Well, if you're seated like this, you can. Now, I'm going to read this for us, and I would just love for us to kind of keep track of how many different rules we think this woman is breaking. Look at verse 37 with me. And a woman in the city who was a sinner. We're not introduced to her by her name or by her profession. We're simply introduced to her by her moral problems. Having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. How did she hear about this? Well, remember, small town. She saw a big crowd following Jesus when he came into town. We learned last week that another big crowd, mourners who are, work, who are walking beside the woman who lost her son, those two crowds come together. And what do you think happened after those two crowds saw the resurrection of that young boy? They went and told each other about it. Word got around. If you grew up in a small town, you're going, oh yeah, word gets around. I get it. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. Just picture that. The last time you were at dinner, did someone start weeping? What happens when you're in a social setting and there's chatter and conversation, but then someone's heart is just kind of being broken? The room stops. You don't hear the clink, clink, clink of, of metal, of forks and spoons against the plates and the cups. You, everything stops. She's weeping, and she began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. This is a beautiful picture, but in the moment, culturally, this was scandal upon scandal upon scandal. This is more scandalous than Prince Harry's new book. This woman came into a room where she would not have been allowed, a gathering of only men. That's the culture at the time. She was a woman of ill repute, and everybody in that room would have known that. She goes in uninvited. Imagine if someone just showed up at your house uninvited for a meal. You might be receptive, you might not. She goes into a house, a person of supposedly high moral character, this religious authority, this Pharisee. And then she physically touches one of the Pharisee's guests. If you were having people over to your house for dinner and a stranger wandered in and started putting their hands on one of your guests, that would be a little odd. Be unsettling. It would be uncomfortable. Take all of that and add sort of the moral code that's around these men as Pharisees, practitioners of Jewish law. This is scandal. This is the top headline at TMZ in an hour. This is a big deal but it is not scandalous to the one person in the room whose opinion on the subject matters most. This is not a scandal to Jesus Christ. Why is it not a scandal? Because as Jesus demonstrated over and over again in his ministry, and as he demonstrates so poignantly in Luke chapter 7, he doesn't look past this woman. He doesn't ignore her. 
He sees her as a person. They see her as a problem and as an interruption. Remember the inner monologue of Simon. If, if this man were a prophet, he would know, like, don't go anywhere near this woman. Jesus doesn't see it that way. I can almost picture him looking at her and really just kind of taking her in. This is a life. This is a human being. This is someone's daughter. This is someone who's had a hard road. And this is his heart. This is his compassion coming through. He doesn't send her out and say, I'll talk to you in a minute. He receives her. He receives what she offers. He never tells her to stop doing what she's doing. What he's doing is he's building a bridge. And on one side of the bridge is the scandal that is erupting. And on the other side is mercy. And I would argue that compassion is the way that you can build a bridge between those two very opposite things. So, how do we get to the 37 words? Well, Simon, cleverly, has an inner monologue. This is in uh, verse 37, I believe, excuse me, 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, saw what this woman was doing, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. That's his inner monologue. He doesn't say it out loud. He says it to himself. But who hears it? Loud and clear. Jesus hears it. Know this, church. You have no secrets from Jesus. You have no secrets. And that's good. Because he's safe. Because he's the, maybe the one person in the world who can hear every secret we have and go, I still love you. I'm with you. But know that you have no secrets with him. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Simon doesn't know that. Simon thinks he's carrying on with his moral high ground, and he's good. And so then come these 37 words, and I'll read them for us. Jesus gets his attention. Hey, Simon, over here. Over here. Let me talk to you for a minute. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of these will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. 37 words right here. These first four lines. An amazing economy. He's introducing two characters. He's setting up the plot. He's telling us the problem. He's showing the resolution. All in 37 words. Unbelievable storytelling. And then he asked this curious question about the moneylender. Which one will love the moneylender more? The moneylender didn't get into business to have his clients love him. He got into business to make money. So why ask this curious question? What he wants from us, just like he wants from Simon, is for us to put ourselves in that scale, the 50 to 500. We're going to come back to this in a minute. But before we do, this is what a denarii looks like. This is a Roman coin, and a denarii was actually connected to the word ten because it meant ten donkeys. Ten donkeys was an equivalent of what you would have earned in a day's work in the ancient Near East, most people. So if you can equivalent that, make an equivalent of that in livestock, which is a valuable thing, ten is what you would have earned in a day. So... If you are on one end of what is owed in this store, you owe 50 denarii. Now, let's assume a five-day work week, right? That's about two and a half months of wages. 
That's not a small chunk of change, right? Compare that to the other person who owes 500 denarii. You assume a five-day work week, use the same math, that's about two and a half years of work. So imagine someone comes to you on Monday, well, Monday's a holiday, Tuesday, and says, hey, um, there's this thing that we've uncovered. You owe two and a half years of your income to our company. Maybe a few of us could write that check. I could not. There's no way. Two and a half years of your income is owed to a creditor. That's staggering. Readers of this, people who encountered this 50 to 500 dichotomy in the ancient Near East, it would have taken their breath away to think about owing 500 denarii, two and a half years worth of work. But it's really easy for us to blow by this detail. And I actually think this particular detail is the heart of the story. Both of those debts, the 50 and the 500, they're significant. They're not a small chunk of change. But the 50, you can probably pull it off. If you had to tomorrow, you could go to a bank or you could go to your friends, you go to your family and say, look, I have this debt, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I need to pay it off and it's this. And if it's about two and a half months worth of your wages, most of us could find resources to pull that off. But it also gives us permission to think of ourselves as stronger and more capable than we really are. I can handle 50 denarii, Jesus. I got this. That's what Simon's thinking. He's thinking, well, that woman over there, clearly in the parable, she's the one that owes 500. I, I might be the one that owns that owes 50, so I can take care of this myself. It is far too easy for people living a comfortable life to think of themselves as owing 50 and not 500. If you've got a job, if you have a home, if you have health insurance, if you're not scraping by, you're living a relatively comfortable life, which I believe is most of us. And in that economy, we begin to tell ourselves that we can handle it that we can handle things spiritually for ourselves. I got this. I can figure it out. Yeah, you know, I, there's parts of my character that I don't like very much. Sometimes I snap at my kids. I, you know, I'm not that bad of a person, right? Comfortable living allows us to believe this. And what it does is it moves us away from utter reckless dependence upon Jesus Christ that this woman demonstrates so powerfully. Most of us would be aghast to ever put ourselves in such a position of servitude as we see this woman doing. We just wouldn't do it. And let's be honest, on the east side, we would find a professional to pay to do it for us and do it well. You got a leaky uh, plumbing problem, you got an issue with one of your kids, you go find a professional to help you deal with that problem. That doesn't work when it comes to our souls. Every one of us is in that position of being in debt 500 and more because of sin. Jesus takes sin seriously in this passage. Remember later he says, to this, he says about this woman, her sins which were many. He doesn't look past it. He acknowledges that she's got a real problem. But what this number, this 5,500 dichotomy forced me to do this week is to really challenge myself and go, how much do I really see myself as being that in debt spiritually? being that broken, being that mired in my own sinfulness. 
do I see myself that way very often? When I look in the mirror, do I see someone that's a sinner saved by grace? I would rather think of myself as someone that's capably navigating my life. But that's not true. Apart from Jesus Christ, I am not capable of anything. But our world would lead us to believe otherwise. Our professions would lead us to believe otherwise. Our confidence, our capability, our sense of, I've made it, I've arrived. It doesn't lead us toward a posture of dependence on Jesus. It leads us toward self-sufficiency. A self-sufficiency that will not work when it comes to our souls. Scripture is abundantly clear about this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even those things that we think we do super well, that we're so good at. I give Jesus. I'm able to serve others. I take care of my family. Jesus looks at those and he says, you know what? Those are filthy rags. Those are good things, but they are not the moral fiber of your being. They will not amount to much. This woman understands that, and Simon does not. And out of that understanding, oh my gosh, she lavishes praise on King Jesus. She knows that she owes 500, that her soul is desperate without him. I'm convicted this week that there are very few situations in which I find myself desperate. How about you? This is how we will miss the power of the gospel if we read through this text too quickly. We read it and we think to ourselves, I'm the 50, not the 500. Friends, no. No. The reality of the gospel is that every single day of our lives, we face this uphill battle, and the only one who will carry us into glory, into freedom, is Jesus Christ. It is not my own effort. Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel is this. I am so bad that Jesus had to die for me but I am so beloved that he was glad to die for me. We are that bad. We are that broken. You know what kicks around in your heart. Jesus has no secrets with you. He knows what's in your heart too. But that knowledge is matched by grace. That knowledge is matched by love. And this is where we transition to talking about the great love that is demonstrated. This is uh, how Simon responds to Jesus' 37-word mini-parable. He says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt, Jesus, I I guess what you want me to say is the guy that owed more, that's the one who loves his creditor more. And after Simon says this to Jesus, I just picture this long pause. You know what a pregnant pause is, like in screenwriting? There's a pregnant pause. Simon answers Jesus, and Jesus just looks at him. And he waits. Because Simon needs a minute to put the dots together. Simon, that's you. You owe 500 denarii. Do you see who you are? Do you see how your moral righteousness has blinded you? There's one person in this room besides Jesus who is clear-eyed about the debt that they owe and the greatness of the love that's been extended to them. One person. It's the person whose hair is a mess and wet with both tears and sweat and dirt and perfume. It's the person whose face is puffy and blotched from crying. It's the person who won't look up at the faces of the people in the room because she's so focused on the love and the service that she's rendering to the one rescuer in the room. 
she lavishes this incredible love on Jesus. Jesus had compassion for her before this moment. But this is the moment where she receives that compassion fully. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. He's putting in front of Simon again and again and again, do you not see what's happening here? You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. This is the sheep and the goats from Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is resurrected, and he comes and he says to people, hey, you will serve me. You will take care of those who I care about when you minister to the poor, when you, when you visit people in prison, when you feed the hungry and clothe the naked. And the people who do it well go, wait, we didn't know we were doing that to you. And Jesus says to them, Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. That's what's happening here. With this lavish outpouring of love, she's showing that she gets that. It's not about holding back and and reserving something for yourself. No, it's about pouring it all out at the feet of Jesus. Because the gospel is that good of good news. That Christ Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's how the Apostle Paul put it. How would you put it? If you had 37 words to explain your faith, 37 words, the amount of words that Jesus used to explain that parable, could you do it? I tried it. (laughs) Not the greatest literary masterpiece, but could you do it? Might be a good exercise for us as a church. Could you tell someone outside the faith, why, why do you believe what you believe? And could you do it briefly, simply, clearly? It's not easy. I'm going to give us an opportunity to reflect now, and Greg and Melanie are going to come back up and lead us in a bit more worship. You have a pad of paper around you and a pen. I would encourage you to pick that up. There should be several nearby or on the row behind you. And you can share with your neighbor. At the top of the post-it note or the 3 by 5 card, I just want you to write the word 50 and leave yourself a little bit of room. And then at the bottom, I want you to write the word 500. You can write the number if you'd rather do that. 50 and 500. Okay, we got it? Now I'd like to ask yourself this question. If you live in such a way where you have utter confidence in every meeting you go to, in every conversation you have, when your insecurity is effectively stuffed in the darkest corner of your being, when do you feel like, I got this, like, I'm comfortable with this, I'm confident in this? What are some areas of just utter confidence for you, whether they're real or thinly veiled insecurity, right? Like, I feel confident caring for my children, talking with kids. I feel confident talking to you people. I like doing this. But contrast that at the bottom with, when do you feel like, I I can't do this, I'm finished. When that weight of that debt of 500 denarii, the weight of your sin, the weight of your brokenness, the weight of how much pain you carry around in your heart when it's just too much for you. When do you feel like the weight on your shoulders is crushing you? We all get there. 
Ever since the COVID pandemic, I have heard people use the word overwhelmed more than I ever have in all my years in ministry. And it's appropriate. When's the last time you said, I'm overwhelmed? The reason I want us to list these things is because these are opportunities for us to say, Jesus, I, I am not fully embracing your gospel just yet. There are parts of my life where I tell myself, I got this. And what I need is to reflect on those parts of my life where I go, I don't, I, I got nothing. I got nothing. Where you are out of your depth. Where you're walking into territory that you could not feel confident in, spiritually or otherwise. Because this will be the entry point for the gospel church, is when we say, Jesus, when I feel like I'm finished, I need to cry out to you. That is where my deep longing for you needs to come from. It's good to feel confident. It's good to feel like there are places of desperation in our lives. But I think for us as a church, for me as a disciple, I need to spend more time thinking about where am I the most desperate? And would I ask Jesus to enter into that space? So we're going to take just a couple of minutes and ponder that together. We'll have uh, just a bit of music playing quietly. And I would just encourage you just to reflect silently on your own. You can have a kind of a whisper conversation with the person next to you if you'd like. But really use this time. Use the paper in front of you. If you need more paper, there's some on the back table. And just consider this dichotomy, this 50 and this 500. Have you had a moment recently when you were lavishing the love of your heart upon the Savior of your life? And if not, what do you want to do about that? All right, let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. Help us to wrap our arms around the gospel just a little bit better. I don't know that all the words I shared will help us get there, but I know you can. And I believe that you will lead us and you will speak to us in these moments. So use this time of reflection for your glory. We ask in the name of Jesus.